Book Four, Chapter Six of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred, Chapter Six, The Diversions of Brantwood. 1879 to 1881. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. Sixty years of one of the busiest lives on record were beginning to tell upon Ruskin. He would not confess to old age, but his recent illness had shaken him severely. The next three years were spent chiefly at Coniston, in comparative retirement, but neither in despair nor idleness nor loneliness he had always lived a sort of dual life solitary in his thoughts but social in his habits liking company especially of young people ready in the intervals of work to enter into their employments and amusements and curiously able to forget his cares in hours of relaxation sometimes when earnest admirers made the pilgrimage to their mecca holy brantwood as a scoffing poet called it they were surprised and even shocked to find the prophet of force at the head of a merry dinner-table and the professor of art among surroundings which a london or a boston effete would have ruled to be in very poor taste shall i take you for a visit there to Brantwood as it was in those old times. It is a weary way to Coniston, whatever road you choose. The inconvenience of the railway route was perhaps one reason of Ruskin's preference for driving on so many occasions. After changing and changing trains and stopping at many a roadside station, at last you see, suddenly, over the wild undulating country the coniston old man and its crags abrupt on the left and the lake long and narrow on the right across the water tiny in the distance and quite along among the forests and moors there is brantwood and beyond it everything seems uncultivated uninhabited except for one grey farmhouse high on the fell where gaps in the ragged larches show how bleak and storm-swept a spot it is. To come out of the station after long travel is to find yourself face to face with magnificent rocks and white cottages among the fir-trees. As you are whirled down through the straggling village and along the shore round the head of the lake, the panorama, though not alpine in magnitude is almost alpine in character the valley too is not yet built up it is still the old-fashioned lake country almost as it was in the days of the itiriad you drive up and down a narrow hilly lane catching peeps of mountains and sunset through thick overhanging trees you turn sharp up through a gate under dark firs and larches, and the carriage stops in what seems, in a twilight, a sort of court, a gravelled space one side formed by a rough stone wall crowned with laurels and almost precipitous coppice, 
the brunt or steep wood above, and the rest is brunt wood with a capital B. You expect that Gothic porch you have read of in lectures on architecture and painting, and you are surprised to find a stucco classic portico in a corner, painted and grained and heaped around with lucky horseshoes, brightly black-leaded and mysterious rows of large blocks of slate and basalt and trap, a complete museum of local geology, if only you knew it. Very unlike an ideal entrance, still more unlike an ordinary one. While you wait, you can see through the glass door a roomy hall lit with candles and hung with large drawings by Burne Jones and by the master of the house. His soft hat and thick gloves and chopper lying on the marble table show that he has come in from his afternoon's wood cutting. But if you are expected, you will hardly have time to look round, for Bruntwood is nothing if not hospitable. The honoured guest, and all guests are honoured there, after welcome, is ushered up a narrow stair, which betrays the original cottage, into the turret room. It had been the professor's until after his illness, and he papered it with naturalistic pansies to his own taste and built out at one corner a projecting turret to command the view on all sides with windows strongly latticed to resist the storms there is old-fashioned solid comfort in the way of furniture and pictures a dura engraving some prouts and turners a couple of old venetian heads and maisonnier's napoleon over the fireplace a picture which Ruskin bought for one thousand guineas, showed for a time at Oxford and hung up here in a shabby little frame to be out of the way. If you are a man, you are told not to dress. If you are a lady, you may put on your prettiest gown. They dine in a new room, for the old dining room was so small that the waitress could not get round the table. The new room is spacious and lofty compared with the rest of the house. It has a long window with thick red sandstone mullions. There, at last, is a touch of Gothicism. To look down the lake, and a bay window open on the narrow lawn sloping steeply down to the road in front, and a view of the old man. The walls, painted duck egg, are hung with old pictures. The doge gritty, a bit saved from the great Titian that was burnt in a fire at the Ducal Palace in 1574, a couple of Tintorettes, Turner and Reynolds, each painted by himself in youth, Raphael by the pupil, so it is said, portraits of old Mr. and Mrs. Ruskin, and little John and his bull heels. There he sits, no longer little, opposite and you can trace the same curve and droop of the eyebrows prefigured in the young face and preserved in the old and a certain family likeness to his handsome young father since mr ruskin's illness his cousin mrs arthur seven has become more and more indispensable to him she sits at the head of the table and calls him the cause 
an eminent visitor was once put greatly out of countenance by this apparent irreverence. After obvious embarrassment, light dawned upon him towards the close of the meal. Oh, said he, it's the cause you call Mr. Ruskin. I thought you were saying the cuz. There are generally two or three young people staying in the house, salaried assistants, or amateur occasional helpers. But though there is a succession of visitors from a distance, there is not very frequent entertainment of neighbours. A Brantwood dinner is always ample. There is no asceticism about the place, nor is there any affectation of intensity or of conversational cleverness. The neat things you meant to say are forgotten. You must be hardened indeed to say them to Mr. Ruskin's face. But if you were shy, you soon feel that there was no need for shyness. You have fallen among friends. And before dessert comes in with fine old sherry, the pride of your host, as he explains, you feel that nobody understands you so well, and that all his books are nothing to himself. They don't sit over their wine, and smoking is not allowed. Ruskin goes off to his study after dinner. It is believed for a nap, for he was at work early, and has been out all the afternoon. In the drawing-room you see pictures, watercolours by Turner and Hunt, drawings by Prout and Ruskin, and early burnt Jones, a sketch in oil by Gainsborough. The furniture is the old mahogany of Mr. Ruskin's childhood, with rare things interspersed, like the cloisonne vases on the mantelpiece. Soon after nine, Ruskin comes in with an armful of things that are going to the Sheffield Museum, and while his cousin makes his tea and salted toast, he explains his last acquirements in minerals or missiles eager that you should see the interest of them, or displays the last studies of Mr. Rook or Mr. Fairfax Murray, copies from Carpaccio or bits of Gothic architecture. Then sitting in the chair in which he preached his baby sermon, he reads aloud a few chapters of Scott or Miss Edgeworth, or, with judicious omissions, one of the older novelists, or translates, with admirable facility, a scene of Scribe or George Sand. When his next work comes out, you will recognize this evening's reading in his allusions and quotations, perhaps even in the subjects of his writing, for at this time he is busy on the articles of fiction, fair, and fall. After the reading, music a bit of his own composition, Old Egina's Rock, or Cockle Hat and Staff, his cousin's Scotch ballads or Christie minstrel songs, and if you can sing a new ditty fresh from London, now is your chance. You are surprised to see the prophet clapping his hands to Kemp Town races or the hundred pipers, chorus given with the whole strength of the company but you are in a house of strange meetings. By about half-past ten his day is over, a busy day, and has left him tired out. 
you will not easily forget the way he lit his candle, no lamps allowed and no gas, and gave a last look lovingly at a peck picture or two, slanting his candlestick and shading the light with his hand, before he went slowly upstairs to his own little room, literally lined with the Turner drawings you have read about in modern painters. You may be waked up by a knock at the door, and a are you looking out? And pulling up the blind, there is one of our conister mornings, with the whole range of mountains in one quiet glow above the cool mist of the valley and the lake, going down at length on the voyage of exploration, and turning in perhaps at the first door, you intrude upon the professor at work in his study, half sitting, half kneeling at his round table in a bay window with the early cup of coffee and the cat in his crimson armchair. There he has been working since dawn, perhaps, or on dark mornings by candlelight, and he does not seem to mind the interruption. After a welcome, he asks you to look round while he finishes his paragraph and rides away composedly. A long, low room evidently two old cottage rooms thrown into one, papered with a pattern specially copied from Marco Malziale's circumcision in the National Gallery, and hung with Turners. A great early Turner of the Lake of Geneva is over the fireplace. You are tempted to make a mental inventory. Polished steel fender, very unesthetic. Curious shovel, his design, he was stopped to remark, and forged by the village smith. Red mahogany furniture with startling shiny emerald leather chair cushions, red carpet and green curtains. Most of the room crowded with bookcases and cabinets for minerals. Scales in a glass case, heaps of mineral specimens, books on the floor, rows of diagrams early Greek pots from Cyprus, a great litter of things, and yet not disorderly nor dusty. I don't understand, he once said, why you ladies are always complaining about the dust. My bookcases are never dusty. The truth being that, though he rose early, the housemaid rose earlier. Before you have finished your inventory, he breaks off work to show you a drawer or two of minerals, fairyland in a cupboard or some of his missiles, King Hakon's Bible, or the original manuscript of the Scot he was reading last night, or opening a door in a sort of secrétaire, pulls out of their sliding cases frame after frame of Turner's, the Bridge of Narni, the Falls of Turney, Florence or Rome and many more to hold in your hand and take to the light and look into with a lens quite a different thing from seeing pictures in a gallery at breakfast when you see the poster bag brought in you understand why he tries to get his bit of writing done early the letters and parcels are piled in the study and after breakfast at which as in old times, he reads his last written passages. How much more interesting they will always look to you in print. 
After breakfast, he is closeted with an assistant, and they work through the heap. Private friends known by handwriting, he puts aside. Most of the morning will go in answering them. Business, he talks over and gives brief directions. But the bulk of the correspondence is from strangers in all parts of the world. Admirers' flattery, students' questions, begging letters for money, books, inference, advice, autographs, criticism on enclosed manuscript or accompanying picture, remonstrance or abuse from dissatisfied readers, or people who object to his method of publication or wish to convert him to their own religion, and so the heap is gradually cleared. With the help of the waste paper basket, the secretary's work cut out, his own arranged, and by noon a long row of letters and envelopes have been set out to dry. Mister Ruskin uses no blotting paper, and as he dislikes the vulgar method of fastening envelopes, the secretary's work will be to seal them all with red wax and a seal with the motto. Today, cut in the apex of a big specimen of corsetni. If you take, as many do, an interest in the minutiae of portrait painting and think the picture more finished for its details, you may notice that he writes on a flat table, not on a desk, that he uses a cork penholder and a fine steel pen, though he is not at all a slave to his tools. And differs from others rather in the absence of the sine qua non from his conditions. He can write anywhere on anything with anything. Wants no pen wiper, no special form of paper or other fad. Much of his work is written in bound notebooks, especially when he is abroad, to prevent the loss and disorder of multitudinous foolscap. He generally makes a rough syllabus of his subject in addition to copious notes and extracts from authorities, and then writes straight off, not without a noticeable hesitation in the revision, even in his letters. His rough copy is transcribed by an assistant, and he often does not see it again until it is in proof. Printers' proofs are always a trial. And he is glad to shift the work onto an assistant's shoulders, such as Mr. Harrison was, who saw all his early works through the press. But he is extremely particular about certain matters, such as the choice of type and arrangements of the page, though his taste does not coincide with that of the leaders of recent fashions, Mr. Jowett of Mrs. Hazel Watson and Vinny Limited. Said in Hazel's magazine for September 1892 that Ruskin made the size of a page a careful study, though he adopted many varieties. The false page is different from and not so symmetrical as that of the octavo works series, although both are printed on the same size the paper medium octavo. Then there is the Ninth Faith. And Oric, in both of which the type Pica Morden, this delightful type, wrote Ruskin, and the size of the page are different from any other. Yet both were his choice. 
the Auric page was imitated from an old edition of Miss Edgeworth. The first proof he criticized thus: "Don't you think a quarter inch off this page, as enclosed, would look better? The type is very nice. How delicious a bit of Miss Edgeworth's is! Like this." Ida was another page of his choice, and greatly approved. His title pages too were arranged with great care. He used to draw them out in pen and ink, indicating the size and the position of the lines and letters. He objected to ornaments and to anything like blackness and heaviness, but he was very particular about proportions and spacing, and about the division of words. In the morning, everybody is busy. There are drawings and diagrams to be made, manuscript to copy, references to look up, parcels to pack and unpack. Someone is told off to take you round, and you visit the various rooms and see the treasures, inspect the outhouse with its workshop for carpentry, framing and mounting, casting leaves and modelling. One work or another is sure to be going on. Perhaps one of the various sculptors who have made Ruskin's bust is busy there. Down at the lodge, a miniature Brantwood turret and all. The seven children live when they are at Coniston. Then there are the gardens, terraced in steep rocky slope, and some small hot houses which Ruskin thinks a superfluity, except that they provide grapes for sick neighbors. Below the gardens, a path across a field takes you to the harbour, begun in play by the Xenophon translators and finished by the village mason, with its fleet of boats. Chief of them, the jumping Jenny, called after Nonty Yord's boat in red gauntlet, Ruskin's own design and special private water carriage. Outside the harbour, the sailboats are moored. Mister Seven's Lily of Brantwood, Midiard's boat, and his snail. An unfortunate craft brought from Morecambe Bay with great expectations that were never realized, though Ruskin always professed to believe in her as a real sea boat. See harbors of England, such as he used to steer with his friend Uhe, the Boulogne fisherman, in the days when he too was smitten with sea fever. After luncheon, if letters are done, all hands are piped to the moor. With bullhooks and choppers, the party winds up the wood paths. The professor first, walking slowly and pointing out to you his pet bits of rock leafage, or ivy the trunk, or nest of wild strawberry plants. You see, perhaps, the ice house tunnelled at vast expense into the rock and filled. At more expense, with the best eyes, opened at last with great expectations and a most charitable intent, for it was planned to supply invalids in the neighbourhood with ice, as the hothouses supplied them with grapes, and revealing, after all, nothing but a puddle of dirty water. You see more successful works, the professor's little private garden. Which he is supposed to cultivate with his own hands, various little wells and watercourses among the rocks, moss-grown and fern-embowered, and so 
you come out on the moor. There, great works go on. Juniper is being rooted up. Boggy patches, drained and cultivated cranberries are being planted, and oats grown. Paths engineered to the best points of view. Rocks bared to examine the geology. Though you cannot get the professor to agree that every inch of his territory has been glaciated, these diversions have their serious side, for he is really experimenting on the possibility of reclaiming wasteland, perhaps too sanguine, you think, and not counting the cost. To which he replies that as long as there are hands unemployed and misemployed. A government such as he would see need never be at a loss for labourers. If corn can be made to grow where juniper grew before, the benefit is a positive one. The expense only comparative, and so you take a pick with the rest and are almost persuaded to become a companion of Saint George. Not to tie a newcomer, he takes you away after a while to a fine heathery promontory. Where you sit before a most glorious view of lake and mountains, this he says is his Naboth's vineyard. He would like to own so fine a point of vantage, but he is happy in his country retreat, far happier than you thought him. And the secret of his happiness is that he has sympathy with all around him, and a hearty interest in everything, from the least to the greatest. Coming down from the moor after the round, when you reach the front door, you must see the performance of the waterfall. Everybody must see that. On the moor, a reservoir has been dug and dammed with ingenious floodgates, Ruskin's device, of course, and a channel led down through the wood to a rustic bridge in the rock. Some one has stayed behind to let out the water, and down it comes. First a black stream and then a white one, as it gradually clears, and the rocky wall at the entrance becomes for ten minutes a cascade. This too has its uses. Not only is there a supply of water in case of fire, the exact utilization of which is yet undecided, but it illustrates one of his doctrines about the simplicity with which works of irrigation could be carried out. Among the hills of Italy, and so you go into tea and chess. For he loves a good game of chess with all his heart. He loves many things you have found. He is different from other men you know, by the breadth and vividness of his sympathies, by power of living as few other men can live, in admiration, hope, and love. End of Book Four, Chapter Six. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.